Friends, thank you so much for being with us for this first year, 2019, the year when we started the Protect Your Noggin podcast. It was a year where, for Stacy and I, so much has changed. So many important and positive things have happened. It's also been really difficult because change can be very difficult. This show is going to be difficult. If you don't feel ready to listen to a show where we talk about the reasons why people who have gone through spiritually and other kinds of um, emotional and physical abusive situations have found that the concept of forgiveness has been used as a weapon to silence them, to keep them from having their voices heard, to keep things from becoming resolved from people dealing with the root causes of systematic problems. If you're not ready for that, just know that we wish you the best of 2020. And we are with you. We hope you'll come back for another show. This show is jam-packed with triggers. Triggers for me. Some of the things that Stacy and I were reading as we're looking at this, it was very difficult. It's not that we're going to dwell in negative stuff. It's that we are going to be looking at the ways in which people who have been harmed in religious circles and other circles, but people who have been harmed in religious circles often get shut down by this seemingly really positive concept of forgiveness. We're going to talk about just world theory and how that plays into people's motivations because people sometimes are not trying to be evil, but they are working against the best interest of people who have been hurt. In this quest to feel okay about the world, to feel that the world is as it should be, and to feel that the world is just, and that people who suffer deserve to suffer. It is a natural human experience that we feel this way, that we think this way, but it's something we need to disabuse ourselves and our communities of. So, for the rest of you, if you're ready to jump in, if you're ready to dig deep into this conversation about the ways in which forgiveness can be weaponized, Forgiveness can be used as a tool to keep the healing out of the community. Then you are in the right place. We're going to, again, talk about just world theory. Then we're going to get into the question of forgiveness, the ways it should be used, the ways that it can help us personally to heal, but also the ways in which sometimes it's not the first step in the direction of healing. Thanks for being with us. Let's go. All ahead, one third. All ahead, one third. Aye, aye. Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. Three, zero, three. All ahead, full.
All right, Stacy. There's a lot of New Year's. Yeah. You know, it's been happening. This, this is the forty-sixth New Year I've seen. <laughs> this one is big because it's also a new decade. You know, I I remember back when it was going to turn twenty ten. Well, yeah. first of all, back up. Y two K was Y two K was huge. We all thought that who knows if the computers can handle <laughs> the whole changing over. I wish computer meltdowns. You know was the thing we're worried about. We're worried about ecological collapse, you know, a kind of cultural civil war, all these things. And I, and I remember hearing, I think it was... My maybe, computer doesn't work. Those were the days we'd listen to Art Bell, or I don't know if it was George Norrie already at the time, but in like... Coast to coast. Coast to coast. And, and it was hitting about 2010. And I remembered hearing all of these frightening predictions from these guests and stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, that of all these things Coast that will happen. Coast to Coast always do that. You know, and, you know after you know, 2010. And so I was just thinking like, oh gosh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm afraid to kind of be alive, at, you know, at, in that decade. Right. So yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't, how did life get so much scarier? <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, it is interesting, but I do feel that it has, I feel that I sense that in people, there's yeah. anxiety everywhere. Oh, there's, yes. there's so much I don't know, uneasiness. I see a lot of pain, a lot of yeah. sadness. Yeah. A lot of people struggling. Yes, a lot of loneliness. And you know, and the other interesting thing too is with all of the computers and things and even talking with the kids, there's a lot of isolation. Yeah. People are more, you know, hanging out of their house, doing less, like getting out, whether it's because they don't have disposable income or whether they're too tired at the end of the day. When was the last time the kids were dancing around a maypole? I know. Jumping into the River Thames or ISIS as they let's, said in Let's Oxford. bring it back. I don't know. Don't jump into the River <laughs> no, ISIS. Not that, said, yeah. but I mean, let's bring let's bring the dancing back. You know? Yeah. Let's bring a little bit of celebration and fun. I, I, I would love to help push that forward. 2019, what do we declare? Last year, this time. We called it the year of no fear. Or the year of fearlessness, but year of no fear I like rhymed. The year of I like the year of fearlessness because yeah. whenever I, again, I think I've said this before, but if you label that you're like not doing something, it's usually object fixation that you've, you know, you've taught about that, that you focus on the thing that you're trying to avoid rather than embracing something positive. So I want to... So oops. <laughs> I was, rather, it a, was it a frightening year? It, it was, was a little bit of a frightening I year. I mean, it was... It was major, a year of courage. Major moves for us, and yes, but it, and it, it has been fearful, and it also yeah. has been full of adventure for us. And, and so wonderful. And a lot of fun. Overcoming that fear allowed us to stay in some really fun places. We traveled around during my sabbatical yeah. around the country. It was interesting, and maybe it's a tiny bit naive, but as we were walking around New Orleans, we would be walking even at night in some of these places and stuff and I honestly I didn't think anybody would mess with us like we I mean we're pretty smart partly we do have we do I'm not I'm not you know saying that this is the only thing you need you know maybe some pepper spray is helpful but not today Satan that kind of attitude is sometimes helpful yeah you know not and this is actually maybe in a future episode we'll talk about this that sometimes the way that you bring your boldness to the front not in an aggressive way but acknowledging people that walk by looking them in the eye nodding and then, you know, mm-hmm. saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in possession of my space is right. really important. But now we recognize that we don't have it yet, that we have a lot to work on. But if we give up hope, then we concede to doom. And yeah. that ain't no good. No, that's not, no, that ain't no good. That's not a very fun ending of a story. No. And so I have hope. I have hope because the flames in a burning barn, burn hottest before it crumbles. The witch trials in Salem were not the sign 
of a new age of superstition. It was the beginning of looking at American law that was able to separate itself out from superstition. Right. And you look at what the image of a phoenix, right? You come out of the fire. Bring it. And then you be a reborn new life. I wish Tucson was named Phoenix. Then we moved there immediately because <laughs> I love Tucson. Anyway, so, so, but in, but, but in yeah, this. Coming out of the ashes. You, yeah. you rise out of the ashes and you come out better for it. Uh, a, a new, a new being more complete with, with more understanding and a richness and a depth there that you could not have possibly have gotten to without the, the trial that you came through. It is the Anastasia. It is the resurrection. We don't just get scrubbed. We get dead mm-hmm. and we get risen. That is the message of the greatest spirituality. And it's, it's really, it's an amazing thing as we keep reading these things, um, as we're doing our research, even in the Tao Te Ching. Mm-hmm. Now, the Tao Te Ching doesn't talk about death and resurrection. No. But it does talk about this idea that sometimes it's not all going to be accomplished by force, by it meaning success. Sometimes failure is as helpful as victory, and sometimes victory can be your doom. Yeah, I mean, you hear stories all the time where people that have won the lottery, you know, they're not better for it. They're in financial ruin, or mm. their relationships fall apart, or... And think about it, everybody people comes... are fighting. Everybody comes knocking at their door for something, right. you know, and then they have to decide who they're going to give money to or not, and I don't know. That would That's a lot of responsibility, and people that aren't used to having the money, unfortunately, I think become victims of the whole thing, really, yeah. with everybody clamoring after, after what they've got. I do want to make one clarification, though. The Tao Te Ching does talk about a going back to the source and then branching back out again. And so there's this constant like contracting. Yeah, sometimes we need to reset. And then expanding. Yeah. So that's the closest I've seen to, I mean, they don't use the words death and resurrection, right. but it does talk about how, and I, would, I kind of envision it as more like what, there's a star, right? And it's going to radiate light, but eventually the star will then collapse on itself, right? That's what Neil deGrasse Tyson says, I think. Anyway, I'm not. (laughs) Or or Stephen Hawking, as the (laughs) the universe expands and it kind of bounces back in. Yeah, but it does it does make mention of that idea in more of a a cosmic way, right? Not not that it's dictated, but that it happens naturally. What we're going to get to before the end of this show, dear friends, is we're going to talk about the ways in which the Christian tradition, through Irenaeus, a early church theologian, used the writings of Saint Paul based on the life, death and resurrection of Jesus to talk about the ways in which Jesus retells the story of human history and perhaps your history, and that helps us to deal with this question of forgiveness. But in that case, Mm -hmm. the case of the Christian story, there is a newness to our embodiment that brings us to a place where we say, we are going to be stronger, but not because what happened was okay. Mm-hmm, right, right? right? It wasn't okay the way they treated Jesus. Mm-hmm. We celebrate in Christianity this cross, but we don't celebrate empires mm-hmm. crucifying mm-hmm. prophets. Right. And I think sometimes Christianity often gets off track when we emphasize how, oh, isn't it glorious? Isn't it wonderful that somebody's suffering for the faith? No, it's not wonderful. Right, right. It, it ain't no good. Mm-hmm. It's just what you need to do if you're going to be on the team of the, the, the heroes. And the, and the 
Good Friday services that I've been to are some of the most solemn, you know, in a in a really heavy way of just it, it does feel like there's this hopelessness, you yeah. know, in the And service. you have to almost process through that. Mm-hmm. When we were in the Seattle area, there was an Episcopal church we visited, and I think I was speaking, speaking there, and there was a woman that I knew who was maybe an adjunct professor that worked with us, and um, she was dying. And I brought the kids to, uh, to the service, mm-hmm. and I think you came. And she uh, went up at this part of the service that I didn't want to do because, you know, we're more Protestant, low church mm-hmm. in our upbringing. And here we are, and this is kind of Anglo-Catholic. And there's this cross on a Friday, and it's got these nails in it. And people were going up and kneeling and kissing this disgusting cross with these rusty nails in it. And I said, well, I'm not doing that papist nonsense. <laughs> And then I saw this woman who was in the pew in front of us, and I knew she didn't have another year. And she was a wonderful woman, really interesting, uh, really smart about, you know, Epic of Gilgamesh and stuff like this. And she walked up, and she knelt down, and she kissed that ugly cross. And I said, we're going, kids. (laughs) We're going to go kiss that cross, too. This is not idolatry. This is an embrace of the reality that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. And whatever that means, it's not cognitive, it's, it's, it's mysterious. But what we're talking about today, friends, is the way that we process psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, the way we process pain, trauma, mm-hmm. and victimization of other people in our midst. And so, suffering. So, Stacy, this is really what motivates us is this idea of just world theory. How does just world theory play into the way that religious communities deal with somebody making an allegation of abuse or having a, a painful situation happen in their lives? Well, um, and I think, I mean, back up, I mean, it, as far as, it doesn't even have to be trauma necessarily. I think everybody is looking for a reason why things are happening. Why do why do good things why do you know good things happen to people and why do bad things happen to people mm-hmm. and so it can go both ways really and the idea is that somehow they're deserving of they've done something in their lives that created the situation so for victimization it might be that they if it you know if it's sexual then maybe they dressed in a certain way that right. encouraged certain behavior maybe they were flirtatious or something they'll come up with all sorts of different maybe actions or things, or, you know, maybe, you know, it could be even just their socioeconomic level or something, right. you know, like it doesn't really, it, all these different pieces of it where yeah, people, people are afraid of when they hear something terrible happening, they also really kind of want something good to happen to them, you know, so they're kind of maybe, you know, they're wondering like, what is this, what is it? What is the magic that you have if something good happens to you? And what did you do right? And how can I replicate that so I can get some of that too? Or conversely, what did you do to deserve this terrible thing that I can avoid in my own life so this terrible thing doesn't happen to me? And it's really unfortunate because it doesn't work like that. (laughs) I mean, and and, and we also, there's time, karma, similarly, like, we there's this concept where people feel like what goes around comes around and there is there is 
maybe something where if you are acting in a certain way as far as like a you know positive attitude, mm. you've got to smile, that That's totally people true. might be drawn to that. So there's, You reap what you sow. There's pieces of this that we see, but then we apply it in a much larger way when it comes yeah. to especially victimization. A structural way. People that are poor are the losers, and they're losers because they're lazy or there's something wrong with them. Right. This person's winners, homeless winners because are, are they're, achievers. they're alcoholics and, and right. drug addicts. You know. Sometimes those things are true, but also sometimes the reason those things are true is because they were not loved, they were abandoned. There are so many layers to this stuff. Right. But we love to be able to say this. When I, I'm terrified of flying. So when I hear that a, you know, a, a plane goes down, that started in a third world country, I say, well, don't be flying planes out of a third world countries and you'll be fine. It <laughs> makes me feel mm-hmm. all right. But what is this concept of just world theory? Or really, when you think about theory, theories are these established things like, you know, Einstein has it's a theory. It's more like a hypothesis. Right, but, the just world hypo- hypothesis then. But again, it, it's that, that somehow there's this like cosmic moral balance that everything falls back into, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, Again, when good things happen, you deserve it. When bad things happen, you deserve it. And and so I think that it's it's sometimes called fallacy, the just world mm, fallacy. Yeah. And it's that attributing blame to somebody that really it it had nothing to do with what they like what they deserve or mm. or or earned. All these different cognitive biases that people have that they feel safer. They feel like that somehow when they feel out of control, that something is in control, that, that they can then yes. gain their power back by, again, encouraging certain behaviors, avoiding other ones, so they don't have these terrible things happen. They don't have to be scared. Right. I, you know, it's the same thing. I don't live in a bad neighborhood, therefore I don't have to worry about violence. I can sleep at night. Right. You know, this is, it's a natural human phenomenon. It's interesting too, because with Irvine here, where, I mean, it's supposed to be what, the safest city in America or at one time. You know, I haven't heard that much lately. <laughs> I haven't heard that. We've and, had some issues. And we know there's yeah. quite a bit of crime, actually, you know, at least, I think the app next door, you know, put that by the wayside. Ooh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but... But people do think, if I live in this certain neighborhood, then bad things can't happen in that neighborhood. And then they're like, what's happening? You know, what's going on here? And, and, and there's even times where people will think that God is doing something to somebody. So one of our kids' friends was over the other day, and she had, was telling us about how her mom, when she was diagnosed with cancer, her, that her mother, that would be this girl's grandma, had blamed the mother for her becoming secularized. She was, they're, they're Muslim, and she, the, the mom didn't really ever practice that anymore. And so somehow this was going to be something from God that she deserved because of her lack of belief or what she <laughs> isn't doing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, a lot of times people can be tempted to say that somehow God is bringing this on somebody or... Mm-hmm. And if it's not God, it's something else. It's something that you did. And you need to have that, otherwise you are in that, that place. I remember somewhere our friend Betsy Little, Dr. Betsy Little, the psychology professor, said to us that it's more likely for people to be able to overcome a situation where they were drinking and then accidentally hit somebody and killed them 
because they would say, if I stop drinking, I won't be in that situation anymore where I might accidentally cause this harm. Uh, but when somebody wasn't doing anything wrong, and, and let's say somebody, somebody came out in a psych, you know, in a um, in a, a skateboard, mm-hmm. and they killed somebody, then they feel like at any moment, anything can chaos happen, can happen, and their whole world can fall apart. How does this relate to the way that sometimes religious communities treat whistleblowers or people who people who sound an alarm about abusive or toxic? abusive behaviors within a religious community. We had mentioned in one of our earlier episodes that it's really difficult for for people to allow their their church or their their leader to take the fall of all of this right. or somehow it will change the whole dynamic within their church or their family if it's you know takes away parent. everything they care about, their safety blanket and their ideology. Absolutely. So it's easier to sort of brush it aside and somehow basically find a way to blame the victim, that somehow they did something to create this. Because we're often trying to find a way to make the problem go away. We don't like problems. We also want to know why the situation happened in the first place. What were all of the building blocks that brought it into place so that it won't be repeated? And somehow there's some kind of blame with the victim involved with that. And then perhaps sometimes it can even be you know, there can be some things that they attribute to the leader as well, but now they can be counseled and corrected on that and won't fall into that trap again. What we're, what we're saying here is that you need to be very careful not to apply this just world fallacy to situations of abuse or mismanagement or bad acting in a community. Um, and it's very, very easy to fall into that, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's a natural thing. So you can... Heck, forgive yourself for being naturally disposed towards wanting a, a, an easy explanation for why something went wrong. And we're saying, no, it's not like this. Would you read our translation of the least favorite, at least originally my least favorite translation chapter of the Tao Te Ching was chapter 5. Now, chapter, chapter 5 of the Tao Te Ching is in many ways like the book of Job. My, uh, my friend Ted says that he, he gets angry at the book of Job. He hates the book of Job because it seems to not really resolve the problem of bad things happening to decent people and, and, and wicked people prospering. Right. And, well, and, really, and, and all of what Job's counselors, they all were saying, you know, what are you, what are you doing what did you here? Wrong? What did you do wrong? That's exactly what you happened. You must have done something wrong. Right. Because none of this would be happening to you if you didn't. Read the book of Job. If you do not understand the pathos of this, if you don't understand this, there are people in your community that have been harmed, perhaps, and they're like Job. And not only do they have to deal with the suffering that they endured, but they have to deal with other people telling them that there must be some reason why they brought this on themselves. Exactly. Oh, Oh, so horrific. Worst. But now, not only does Job do this, Lao Tzu says something like this Mm -hmm. in chapter 5 of the Tao Te Ching. Chapter 5. The cosmos is impartial. The sun shines and rain falls on heroes and villains alike. The sage is impartial, treating saints and sinners without prejudice. The atmosphere is like a bellows. Wind blows through seeming emptiness. It stokes fires but never runs out of breath. Yet when blowhards talk, everyone gets exhausted. It is best to stay centered. 
Now, I, the other reason I don't like that is because I am a blowhard. I, I'll do a, <laughs> a three-hour podcast and, you know. But where we really struggled when we were looking at this was the sage is impartial. We can understand the cosmos, okay? Yeah. There's a certain sense in which, you know, the sun shines and the rain falls on everybody. Right. And some people are going to get sunshine, some people are going to get rain, and it just happens. There's going to be tornadoes sometimes, there's hurricanes sometimes, there's earthquakes sometimes. And it all, you know, I mean, not... You know, that's another thing, too, is even some of the talk of the hurricane in New Orleans, because yep. somehow God is is going to judge that whole city for its, you know, it's sin. lewd behavior. There was some lewd behavior, <laughs> I, I, should, Absolutely. <laughs> I should mention. But it doesn't explain why all these other cities get, you know, hurricanes as well. Anyway, but we do understand a little, it's easier for us to sort of think that the cosmos itself is going to be impartial. But then when it says the sage is impartial, treating... Which, which by the way, the, in the Tao Te Ching, it's the Shenren, it's the, it's the holy person. So in, in many ways, we were toying with the idea of translating it as the saint. Mm-hmm. Because in many ways, that's what it is. Not mm-hmm. in the Catholic sense, but the person who is aligned with the Tao, with right. God, right? So, whoa... And what is the concept that is actually used in the Tao Te Ching? They, there's a, it's like kind of an idiom, right? The everything it, under heaven. No, oh, oh, in, no, in no. Chinese. In Chinese, the original Chinese for chapter five, it says that that the Tao and um, this this the world that we live in, it treats all of the ten thousand things, which is it's all the organic, the living things in in the whole scene, in the whole play here. Yeah. So the literal language is the ten thousand things. Right. So it says it treats them like straw dogs. Now, these straw dogs relate to an old Chinese practice where you would have these little paper animals, and they would be used in these rituals. And then at the end of the ritual, you would just kind of toss them on the ground. Kind of imagine, we go back to the New Orleans Mm -hmm. situation. Everybody is really excited about these bees, (laughs) apparently. Right, right. You know, these bees are a hot commodity, you know. And then as we're walking around later at night. Puke. Beer cans and beads everywhere, and beads everywhere on the, on on the, the ground. ground. Yeah, yeah, most of them are broken. broken. Yeah, but the but the idea is that that in many ways what Lao Tzu is saying in the Tao Te Ching is that that the universe thinks about all of the living things or treats them as if they're just Strata. beads mm-hmm. <laughs> at New Orleans. Mm-hmm. They're they're there for a time. They serve a purpose for a time, but then they're you know. It, 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 it's indifferent towards it. Mm-hmm. And that really made me mad. Well, but then it goes on to say that the sage does the same thing. Oh, yeah. And so we could understand, again, the impartial universe or the cosmos, but an actual sage, the person that really should understand all of this wisdom, they're going to treat people like straw dogs? What does that mean? And so as we wrestled with this, like, what does that mean? That's when we, in thinking through it, came up with the sage is impartial. Treating yeah. saints and sinners without prejudice. They can s- step back and see the big picture. They can see how, like, why the saint is there, why the sinner is there, how the whole cosmic play or dance all brought on whatever the situation was. So you're not biased. Mm-hmm. You're not saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just like my person, mm-hmm. even if they've done something bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to disregard the complaints of somebody that I don't have a relationship with. Right. This, friends, it started out, chapter five, when we were translating it, started out as really negative for us, a very 
difficult thing for to deal uh, for us to deal with. It turned out to be one of the most important things, I think. Mm-hmm. And that first part is to say, when you're dealing with these questions of abusiveness in religious communities, it's actually not a good idea for you to just rely on friendships and right. loyalties. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea for you to say, what's really going on here? Right. So if you just blindly b- believe the person that is your friend, right? You're not going to you're not searching for the truth in the whole situation as well as here's the other thing. People were hurt in that whole situation and it won't be stopped. It will continue if you don't get to the root cause right. of all of it. And the perpetrator is going to suffer more, you're going to suffer more, the system's going to suffer more, the people are going to suffer more. It's not helping anything. But here's another one. Matthew 5:45 Jesus says the sun rises on the evil and the good. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the same thing, mm-hmm. and I don't like that either. But see, notice this. This is actually liberating if you can get to it. Jesus comes across a dude. He is blind. He was born blind. Mm. So he wasn't drinking too much and became blind. That would make us feel <laughs> all right, right? No, he was born blind. And then people ask him, dude, did this guy, did he do something in a past life? Did his parents do something, you know? Right. And Jesus disabuses them of this. Jesus says, it, it, it's not that this is karmic. This right. isn't somebody suffering for something. This is the way our experience is. Mm-hmm. This is a randomness to this experience. It's not about being heartless. It's about recognizing that in some ways, even our enemies are there in this strangely random world. It's random in the way that uh, there's an Episcopal writer named uh, Robert Capon. And he wrote a book called Genesis, the movie, that upset me when I read it. And I don't know what, I ha- what happened to my copy of it. But I'm, I, I think I understand a little bit better now as we've been working through this. He says that God is like a, an honest casino dealer. How so? That is, you know, when we first started gambling... <laughs> Back when we were 21 and your folks, you know, we'd go out to the river in Laughlin uh-huh. and we'd go and you'd think, oh man, there must be some kind of scam going on with the roulette, <laughs> right? Like there's like some kind of magnet. They don't need to do that. Right. They just need to let the numbers work and the numbers are going to work out in the house's favor. And they add the the green, the zeros to help move it into slightly their favor. They've it, got the edge. Right. So it doesn't, they don't need to, they don't need to manipulate every single spin. Mm-hmm. In the long run, it works out in their best interest. So what Capon was saying is that God has created the world in such a way that everything's going to be okay. But there's randomness all throughout in the way towards it, which is very different from a very heavy you know, Calvinistic, um, much more providential and, and, and tinkering kind of view. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately one of the things that is important about even Jesus on the cross, is to say sometimes the suffering we experience, sometimes the abandonment we feel in the world is very real. Oh, yeah. It's not just... It, it happened. Yeah. You know, it's there. And sometimes it doesn't have a meaning. We can give it a meaning, but that doesn't mean that it, that it is something that God was doing for a very specific purpose in a direct way or that it's a direct consequence of something that we did. And and that is something too in the Tao Te Ching that it mentions things are going to happen to you. Bad things are going to happen to you. Good things are going to happen to you. But what do you do with those bad things? And 
it's not it's not about attributing blame, but you are then you are the one that applies meaning to what happens so that we can choose to use this moment to learn from it. We can choose to buy the stories that people tell us. So for instance, if your business fails, right? And people say, oh, that failed because you're a terrible businessman, right? Right. Or a woman. Or a woman, sure. <laughs> you can choose to hear the story that people tell about this or, right. or also you can understand what that meaning might be in your own life and then you write your own story from right. it. Right, right. Um, you don't have to buy the story that the world tells you. Now, on the question of forgiveness, we get to a situation where somebody has a complaint. Something bad happened to them in a religious community. We've already established now that people want the world to be just. We want to blame the victim sometimes. We try to quiet down the victim and, and put some of the onus of this whole situation on them, partly because people do not want to deal with problems. Mm-hmm. We, want to go, we want them to right. go away. Now, in what way is forgiveness very healing and very helpful for the individual? Forgiveness is helpful when, if and when you are ready to do it. I like to envision it as a, a cutting of a, a cord, as if somehow there's this cord that is attaching you to this person who caused this pain or suffering in your life, and that there's still this energy that you feel from it. When you are able and uh, you know, when you're able to sort of cut that cord, when you're able to sever that tie, then they no longer have that same power to give you that same feeling anymore. Yeah. And you take back yourself and own, and own that power again, that you're not being subjected over and over to this trauma that happened or you know, or this bad event. And I think that is way easier to do on smaller things. You know, it's, we're just the the tiny little things that we kind of let in there or the different work relationships or things like that. Just cut those little tiny cords because they don't need to be there and they don't need to, you don't need to let them get in underneath your skin. Yeah, those petty resentments and even things that somebody might have done that was unjust. Yes. Somebody didn't treat you right. They didn't give you the accolades that you deserved at work. That cuts you off. Forgiveness is really, really handy there because if you're living in that frustration, like somebody screwed you over. It's really hard to move past it and to focus on positive things and, and where you should put your energy and time in moving forward and, and doing you know, better things for your life, right? Because right. so much energy and time gets thrown into worrying about that. That you get tired, right. <laughs> you know, like if I, I know that sometimes that, you know, I mentioned this a lot, but if I am feeling that road rage, I, you know, it, it does take something from me and I have less it's energy. It's not good for you. Yeah. I have less energy to then go and do something productive the rest of my day. And in fact, you, you know, you'll even probably notice a difference in my face and be like, is everything okay? Yes. You know, and, and then I feel in my body these like this energy or this, like, these emotions. And then I'm looking for why do I still feel this? And then where else can I find it? Maybe around it's the Jeff. House? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's, you know, the frustration with the dishes or whatever else. But my body said, I'm, I'm you know, I'm upset. And so right. now why, you know, and our, our friend Betsy, a, a little, she, uh, she's one of my wonderful professors and 
but she had mentioned that it takes, I think, for the female body, what, 30 minutes or something to calm down from, like, if, if there is some sort of emotional spark that... Dudes, it, like, are like a pic- piccolo peat, she said. <laughs> like, it's kind of, like, intense, and then we kind of phase out. Where with a woman, they hold on to it for at least 30 minutes afterwards. And so when they think that the issue has been resolved and they should no longer be upset, they, their body will still feel it. It'll still linger. And so now they're, like, trying to figure out what it is. So what if, you know, if you got me worked up and you're like, I'm sorry, baby, I didn't mm-hmm. mean to. And I'm like okay, that's fine. I guess I can't be mad about that, but I'm still mad. So now what else is there? What's the reason? What's, you know? These are physiological things. Anyway, but yes. So forgiveness helps us to, to restore our own balance right. in, our, in our centering. It helps us to be healthier, and it's, it's good for us. And releasing resentment is also about living in the now, right? You're you know, right. discarding these things about the past. You're not worried about the future. You're here and you're present. This is all good. So forgiveness, friends, we love it. We also understand that the way of Jesus, the community of the followers of Jesus, were the people of forgiveness. It's part of the Apostles' Creed. We believe in this holy church, this holy forgiveness of, forgiveness of sins. And the, the fact that people misuse forgiveness or weaponize forgiveness is so outrageous to me because I find forgiveness so important. Mm-hmm. In other words, Absolutely. it's not that I don't think forgiveness. I'm not trying to like moderate how much we should forgive. Seventy times seven, we should be infinitely forgiving in a in a very healthy way. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the way that some people have misused forgiveness to protect people that are bad people doing bad things in positions of power is something we need to stop. Right. It is it is really really problematic for Protestants. Right. I think it's the Catholics. And one of- good, good goodness. <laughs> they got their own things. But for the Protestants, we sometimes rely on this idea that we've got you know unconditional forgiveness in Jesus as an excuse to not deal with some problems. Right. Hopefully, people understand that we really believe in the way of forgiveness, and we believe that forgiveness is good for you. It can be healing for you, healthy for you. And one one thing I will add to that is there is a sense in which when you can exercise. Forgiveness. What what you are doing there is you are, are are sort of getting outside of the world of transaction, right? Yeah. And going beyond it, and so right. it's a it's a beautiful thing if and when you're ready to do it, because basically it's no longer about a you know a tit for tat or some sort of like I said the transactional thing. It's the way of embracing unconditional love and seeing the world in a whole new light. Right. So that is definitely very healthy. Right, because it's about a different, it's a new logic. Yes. And for, so forgiveness is important because it's a new logic. We're not bean counters anymore. Right. We're not trying to say, how much do you owe me and how much, no, that's not it. But that is not an excuse for some of the tomfoolery that goes on. Right. So what we've got for you, friends, is ways in which we ought not to let people use forgiveness as a weapon. Stacy, what's number one? Number one. Forgiveness shouldn't be used to keep victims of abuse in line. So how does this work? You've got people who are bringing out a complaint in a community, and the first reaction is, "Mm, maybe you did something to bring this on yourself. After a while, it becomes clear that somebody was victimized by a predator within a community. And they don't know where else to go with this, but they still want to keep the system intact. So they say, forgive and forget. 
go ahead and forgive. Isn't that the thing to do? Isn't that what Jesus teaches us to do? It's what we're told to do in the Bible, yeah, right. is what they'll say. When forgiveness becomes an obligation or a law or a tool for uh, harming you and keeping you in place, that ain't it. No, and, and it doesn't allow for healing. It doesn't no. allow for a healthy processing of the whole situation. Number two, forgiveness can be a tempting way to bypass the hard work of facing structural problems that led to the trauma in the first place. The first step is to say we don't just tell somebody who has been harmed that they should quickly forgive. Mm-hmm. That, that is, that is not your place. No, that is not your place. But this second business is more related to big issues that are going on in society. And this is very tough. And it's really tough because I got two minds about this. I, I, I can feel the, the sentiment going on. Now, there was a racist shooting at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Racism, white dude, shoots up a black church, and they forgive. And this is a powerful testimony. We'll link to it. Go to protectyournoggin.org. I'll show you a, a video where you can see these powerful testimonies. This powerful witness of people who have had family members killed mm-hmm. by a racist, and in a moving way, they, they say, I forgive you. You've ruined my life, but I forgive you. This is powerful because it gives themselves the power. They're mm-hmm. saying, I'm in control I'm in the now. Driver's seat. Yeah. Right. And you're not going to ruin my life, too. So those are all good things. And so, as much as I'm very thrilled, you know, I'm thrilled with the profound spirituality mm-hmm. of the members of this church. I am not so excited about affluent suburban white people saying, well, that, that takes care of that problem, doesn't <laughs> right, it, right? right? Because what that does for us is it says, oh, okay, so now we don't have to have rioting in the streets. Now we don't have to, to take seriously the rhetoric of our communities mm-hmm. and the racism that is, that is systemic. Right. It, it, it lets us off the hook, mm-hmm. and that cannot be. In other words, the problem with forgiveness there for people in positions of privilege is to say, that's the, the testimony of the black church is to forgive. The testimony of, of affluent, privileged, empowered white people is to do something about whatever got us into this in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when these sort of pronouncements happen pretty quickly, you know, part of me wonders... How, you know, if it's premature, have you even had a chance to grieve yet and go through some of the processing of all of it right. before you've said, here's the forgiveness? Because right. then the hard part comes later when you're left there after it all in the aftermath. And then you're like, okay, what was that? Right. And then you feel like you can't have these feelings because right. we are well, already moved on to forgiveness. Yeah. And so now I'm going to take back my forgiveness. And then you don't know what to do with those feelings. Right. And then also people aren't realizing that you still need help processing through that because, well, I guess he said it was good, you know, or she's yeah. good. So anyway, so I, I do Yeah. I really, I feel like some of those things, it's, it's better done after t- some time, time has passed, at least. Yeah. And, it, and they're very powerful. There have yeah. been moments when people go into prisons and say, you know, I understand. Mm-hmm. But you've, you've got to be able to think about it. But that is not for us to say uh, that, that folks but, who have done this aren't, aren't right. doing something saintly. Yeah. It's just that... And again, it's up to them. The they pressure. are the ones that They are the ones that went through it. But also, it, you, know, you also wonder, too, is it, a, is it a community? How much pressure is it 
for the entire community to respond in this way? And did everybody within it right. feel the same way as what right. the story is? So, right. Sometimes people... So think of it this way. Not only are people in power interested in resolving something uncomfortable, people that are involved in it as victims are also interested in getting past it. They don't want to be mm-hmm. just that. That's not their whole existence. And so all of us, when we face traumatization, we have a tendency, or at least part of us, wants to to find some closure mm-hmm. and resolution, maybe quicker than it needs to be. This is something we talked about last week with Augie, with Bojack Horseman. The, the narrative in, in a lot of Western stories of saying, well, we had this monster, you know, we had the horror movie, mm-hmm. then we got rid of the, the monster, and now we're okay. <laughs> well, not necessarily, right? right. It's, we want the, the complete closure, but no, there's, there's going to be these, long, these long-term implications right. of what went down, and you can't use forgiveness as a way to bypass that. Number three. People sometimes mistakenly think that forgiveness takes on a magical quality in which it becomes a performative act with the hocus-pocus of I forgive you. There's a guy named uh, C. Fred Alford, and uh, he wrote something called Trauma and Forgiveness, Consequences and Communities, and that's with Cambridge Press in 2014. And at first I was uncomfortable when I ran across this because he's a guy who's been doing some research on the psychology and the you know, social implications of forgiveness. And he first quotes somebody named Dr. Bayok. He works with hospice care. Okay. And Dr. Bayok is somebody who advocates for this idea that when you're terminally ill, it's really good to release your unresolved anger and uh, your resentments. But here's a quote where he's talking about Bayok and showing how maybe that's not the whole picture. As a topic of popular psychology and theology, forgiveness is approached almost entirely in terms of the benefits it brings to the one who forgives. About the most intelligent statement of this position is that of Ira Bayok, who says, I think forgiveness is actually a very sophisticated emotional strategy for caring for ourselves. So he's talking here at first about the, you know, maybe the, the positive side of releasing that anger. That's not doing you any good when you're on your deathbed. But then he writes this, and, and, and he talks about the ways in which forgiveness can be problematic. Forgiveness is properly about a normative relationship with the offender and the community. The forgiveness is a virtue in the classical sense of embodying a human experience. As such, forgiveness must meet certain ethical standards before it should be given. It should not be given primarily in order to make the self feel better, but in order to make the self be better, as in to be a better person. What Alfred's saying is that there's a lot of folks within the New Age community and self-help communities Mm -hmm. that want to go quickly to this. And there's a lot of people within Christianity that want to go quickly to this idea that, hey, forgive, and then you're going to be released from, you know, some of your strain. But what he's saying is sometimes it's a temptation that you shouldn't take. And and he he basically argues that sometimes, sometimes you should just kind of put the snooze button on that. Sometimes you should let yourself kind of be angry, be righteously indignant. What I take from it is that if you don't properly go through the process, then maybe temporarily you might say you feel better. But ultimately, I would think that it's 
going to creep in again. And so until you can fully figure out what that is all about and, and find real healing, right. you're not, you aren't really going to grow as a person from the whole thing. And so it's taking a shortcut that is actually not helping you grow. You have to be ready to forgive when you forgive and you have to go through that process. And when you do, then you will come out on the other side, but you don't pretend to come out on the other side so you can move on and say, oh, I'm better for it now. I'm a better person now because you are only cheating yourself. I think too often Christians give people the sense that it's, it's a virtue for them to ignore their rage, mm-hmm. their indignation, their... Um, it's a, they think it might be a sign that they are a better person, that they yeah. are somehow more spiritually advanced. <laughs> but you're not fooling anybody. You're certainly not going to fool God, and you're definitely not going to really fool yourself. Jesus goes you can into only the, fool yeah. yourself for so long before it will sneak back in. Jesus goes into the temple... And he doesn't seem like he's that mellow when he's overturning tables and saying, hey, knock this off. You're, mm-hmm. you're turning this temple into a, into a charlatan's you know, hustle. That is not wrong. Mm-hmm. What's wrong is to be a person of aggression and rage and violence and, and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the answer. But w- when you feel something, being told not to feel that or telling yourself not to feel that isn't really healthy. It's not the answer. No. In fact... The only way you can find the healing is to be true to your, true, truthful to yourself. So the right. only way to find the healing is to be truthful to yourself with where you are at in the moment. Anything else, it's just a lie, and it, lies don't help anything. They don't really make anything better. Right. And, and so being able to be bold enough... <laughs> Honest enough with yourself to say, I still feel this. I'm still here. This is right. where I'm at. Number four. All sins are not equal. <laughs> now, this is, a, this is a thing that a lot of Christians have thought over the years. People that have been trained in theology, they say, look, well, we're all sinners, so all sins are equal. The misconception there is that when they, they say, okay, so we all have sin, and so we are all we are all going to go to hell. <laughs> and, the, and the idea behind it is that you can't earn your own salvation. It's not that the whole thing isn't to try to say that all sins are exactly equal. No, they're saying that they carry that same weight as far as being able to be perfect in right. order to earn, you know, to be able to earn, you can't earn your salvation through that. You can't, you can't say that I'm a perfect person because we've all been infected with the sin, is what the theology is saying. And, and for instance, with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, don't be so proud of yourselves for not murdering somebody. Mm-hmm. The only reason you didn't murder anybody, you still hate people. Mm-hmm. You just didn't have the opportunity, or you're afraid of going to jail. You're not a good person. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's asking you to look at the heart. But what sometimes people say is, well, then therefore, none of it matters, right? Like, so-and-so did something really, really bad, but we're all sinners, yeah. right? It could be a politician, it could be a pastor, it could be your uncle, but hey, we forgive, you know? I'm forgiven for cheating on my taxes, you're forgiven for driving 58 and a 55 speed limit, you know, so-and-so's, you know, embezzled, yeah. I guess that's forgivable too, and you just keep pushing, pushing the envelope. And the other dangerous aspect of that is, I've already messed up, and so I'm already in the messed up category, so right. now it doesn't matter 
all the other more messes up so that I'm going to keep doing right. <laughs> because I've already, I'm already in that court. This is why when evangelicals go crazy, they go super, super crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, well, I guess I've already, you know, if I've already like lusted in my heart. I might as well. And then it's just cocaine right. and prostitutes. And it's like, <laughs> and it's like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back slow it down here. there, pops. <laughs> because there, there are different consequences and there are different effects Right. to behaviors. <laughs> and so it matters. It matters you know, what, what is being done in the harm. The amount of harm that something can do does vary. Yeah. It's a Stoic doctrine. The, the ancient, and I love the Stoics, but the Stoics basically were the ones who said, you know, all sins are equal. But Christians didn't say this. It's a more recent thing that people have misunderstood it in this way. And, and even if you wanted to talk about it abstractly or theoretically, I think the problem is that I've seen way too often in the last few years people doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, look, let's go political just for a second. This week, I was was, uh, looking at the Babylon Bee. Mm. And the Babylon Bee started out kind of like a fun Christian version of the uh, onion. The Mm -hmm. onion's fun. And in many ways, if you've you've read any of the stuff I've done on, um, on humor, there are different kinds of humor. There is release humor where, uh, you know, you kind of tell a fart joke and it, and it kind of takes, takes some of the stress out of an otherwise uptight situation. All right. <laughs> then there's superiority humor where you're kind of making fun of somebody. And they did that kind of with uh, Greta, you know, the environmentalist gal. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're kind of making fun of her. Don't punch down. That's mm-hmm. not good humor. Mm-hmm. But it is very common for authoritarian groups. And I just think Babylon B took an opportunity to be like the Wittenberg door or a satire group, and to raise our consciousness and to raise our awareness and turn their opportunity into just kind of getting clicks from people that are self-satisfied about injustice. Right. And I'm, I'm not going to be bashful about this. I think, I don't know who's, I, I remember a few, I don't know, a while back, somebody said, you know, I'm out of this Babylon B game. Somebody quit on it, and they mm-hmm. did it publicly, and I didn't quite understand, and I'm not sure I'll look into it, but... I'm very disappointed in the Babylon Bee. And basically, with the whole thing with, with uh, Mark Galley and Christianity Today, Mark Galley comes out and says, look, um, yeah, sure, it's partisan that people are coming at Trump, but at some point, do we talk about justice? At some point, do we talk about well, right and, they, and wrong? And I think they're, they're using satire to then justify their agenda, which actually i'm i'm seeing there's a lot of unchristianness in the way that it is behaving yeah the joke was their their editorial board is saying that all of washington needs to be removed and yeah that's true right <laughs> but but do you see how similar this is to this move to say that all sins are equal no there's something called natural law there's something called vindicii contra tyrannos a protestant treatise anonymously published that said that there are certain times when a monarch or a ruler tries to step out and become above the law, that, um, that then all bets are off. Then you have to actually depose that person. Mm-hmm. And this is fundamental to Lutheran and Calvinist resistance theory when it comes to uh, deposing a tyrant. And what they said was, you've got to do it orderly, in an orderly way. You find another politician, what they called a lesser magistrate, somebody, a senator or somebody, who is going to lead the charge to put a check and balance on unrestricted corrupt power. Mm -hmm. You friends, I love you, dear listener. Thanks for being here. I don't care 
if you disagree with us, it's all right if you disagree with us. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. you, you, fact, you think that we're reading you should, you should the disagree, definitely think for yourself. Keep your own opinions. But what I <laughs> caution you against is the idea that you are going to be uncritical, A, uncritical about a ruler or a leader, even if they're on your team. And B, you should not be saying that, well, I would deal with this problem of corruption. It's just that everybody's corrupt, so what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Once you get to that point, no one is safe. When you get to the spot where you say, well, yeah, the youth pastor is creepy, but you know everybody's got their own hang-ups. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people are dangerous to themselves and others. Yes. And as long as... I don't even care. What are you thinking? Are you thinking all sins are equal in, in the eyes of the cosmos or God? I think we've already said on this show that the biggest problem when you get to, you know, kind of the, the highest wisdom is to realize that in a certain sense, everybody's kind of a victim and a perpetrator. I get that. But that doesn't mean that we put up with the continuation of abusive behaviors because we can understand them or we feel like there's some kind of... Um, societal or family reason, nature, nurture, genetics, or whatever. We can understand people. We discern with compassion, Mm -hmm. but we don't fail to discern. I don't want to keep bringing up the Babylon Bee, but I think the other thing I find really disturbing about the Babylon Bee is that they call themselves satire. And satire is when you make fun of yourself Mm -hmm. or when you're like punching up at, at power or something Rather than you're taking people off their pedestals, yes. Instead of it, what I see them doing is finding people that are lesser than or the opposite side and 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 punching down at right. them. Right. And and I don't think that that is even the the point of satire. So you can't no. really call it satire. It's mockery. Yeah. It's bullying right. to some extent. And I know that people will maybe disagree with this. This is look. Go back to middle school, friends. You know, when you're making fun of somebody who is not in power, not the popular kid, you're probably not doing satire. You're probably being a bully. Yeah. All right? When you're making fun of a, of, a, of, a, of a kid because you don't like their environmental politics or their tone, I guess you're doing that as a, a Christian outlet or something. Man, I got to tell you, the, the difference between Babylon B and the old Wittenberg door is night and day. And I, I know that, you know, it's, I'm getting old. I'm an old-timey <laughs> guy, but, uh, but no thank you. No thank you. Whatever, whatever, uh, whatever took that, that thing over, it could have been used for such power. I mean, think of it this way. South Park does satire. Mm-hmm. And even when I'm frustrated with them at first, they always tend to bring it around at the end right. and teach me a lesson. Mm-hmm. I don't get a lot of lessons no. from the Babylon Bee. No. Enough of that. But, uh, hey, repent, friends. To, to kind of round this out, I want to hit just three more things related to the Bible and Christian theology, real fast. Mm-hmm. So, that, so we, we're basically saying don't use forgiveness as a, as a weapon. Don't use forgiveness. Don't, don't say to people, you know, uh, I forgive you and fail to recognize that when I say I forgive you, I'm also judging you. Right, right. right. <laughs> I feel really bad. There was this kid. Stacey, remember that? that do, you know, do you remember his name? This kid had this hat on, and it was, he was bold in wearing it. I mean, it was a goofyish hat, right? Yeah. And did you say, you're, to illustrate your point, you said, I forgive you for wearing the hat? Right. And then you never... Explained it. Explained it. I am a scatterbrain at times. <laughs> so if you were that kid, if you're listening to this show, please, please understand I really respect the boldness of that hat you wore, and I wasn't making fun of you. What I was trying to say is, if I forgave this kid for wearing his orange hat, 
then his hat would be somehow offensive or improper in, in that he was doing something wrong by wearing it. Right. And so that you were placing judgment on his hat. <laughs> so, you know, in, unofficially, that's like the fifth caveat. You know, don't use forgiveness. Don't forgive somebody as a way of spanking them. There is a, there is a, a, a story that Jesus tells about the unforgiving, uh, unforgiving servant. And what this is, is there's a guy who, who was uh, super rich, and he had a mid-level manager, and that guy owed him so much money that he could never pay it back in his whole lifetime. And the, the rich man forgave the debt of the mid-level manager. And then the mid-level manager went home, and he had a low-wage worker that owed him, say, 15 bucks, 20 bucks. And he said, listen, you got to pay me back or I'm going to throw you in jail. When the rich man heard about the mid-level manager not being forgiving, he then said, well, now you're out of luck. I'm going to take you. I'm going to throw you into jail, throw away the key. You're done. And Jesus says, this is how it will be for you if you do not forgive. And that used to be a very tough one for me Mm -hmm. because I have certain people and events in my life that I cannot emotionally release Mm-hmm. Or at least it's not easy. Smells, sights, things that I will see will remind me of this pain. And then I will feel like, well, in a very literal way, am I damned? Mm-hmm. Am I unable to be forgiven for the little things that I do because I can't forgive for this big thing? One of the things that I've read as I've been looking at the research in, in theology and forgiveness and pastoral care is that trauma is a different beast. Mm -hmm. That is, when we're dealing with forgiveness, we really should be focusing, if you're teaching this in Sunday school or a sermon, forgiveness is primarily about the little things that people do day to day. They get underneath your skin. Get under, And and sometimes they're they're bad things. They're unjust Mm -hmm. things. But when you deal with trauma, when you deal with somebody seeing a murder, when you're dealing with sexual abuse, these things are so ingrained in our our psyche and our physical bodies mm-hmm. that to expect somebody to just let go of that is putting them in a position of, of futility that you can't do it mm-hmm. right now. Maybe someday you can, that's a, that's a masterful thing, but to tell somebody that that's where they need to be mm-hmm. is not the point. The point of this, I think goes back to what we mentioned father Capon who said that the, the point of this parable, and by the way, he, he's, as much as I was frustrated in some ways with the Genesis, the movie, he does a really great job with his uh, commentaries on the uh, parables. And in Capon's uh, commentary on the parable of the unforgiving servant, he says something very astute. He says, what's going on here is that Jesus is saying, imagine if there's this great big accounting book that God has, and in it are all the things that we've done wrong and right, but ultimately we're in the red. Mm-hmm. So everybody... You know, everybody's a debtor. So he's going to close the book. He's going to throw it in the trash and start over. It's the year of Jubilee at the cosmic scale. Mm -hmm. All debts are canceled. And then somebody wants to go back into the trash, dig out that book, and use that sin, Mm -hmm. use that debt against you. Fine. Once you do that, you've brought the book back out, and in that book, your own sins are there. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's, I think, the best interpretation of what's going on here. That if you're going to play by those rules, if you're going to be judging people in a transactional way, in a bean-counting way, it's going to come back. That's the world you're living in. You're going to turn out to be a hypocrite, and and you're doomed. But it's not about emotional release. 
that's that's like a thing you do with a psychologist right, right. over 20 years maybe. Right. And to put the pressure on an, another person or friends, dear listener, to put it on yourself. Yes. This is not the extra duty that you have. You had this duty to have to suffer through something, and now you've got this duty to get over it. Mm-hmm. Nah, that is not it at all. Now, another resource, if you're interested, is Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf is the uh, kind of the evangelical theologian at Harvard, and uh, he's Croatian. I've seen him speak a couple times. We brought him out to Concordia to speak to some kids on this very topic of forgiveness. And he's got this really interesting take on, on this. I want to leave you just two, two images. The first is from Wolf. Second is from Irenaeus of Lyon. Mm-hmm. Wolf had been in a prison camp accused of espionage. And so he's in prison and he was mistreated. Uh, there had been worse, but he'd say, you know, not, not, not a pleasant experience. And he says that when he gets, if you, if you do this as a thought experiment, he says, what if I get to the wedding supper of the lamb and I'm sitting across, I'm sitting across from the dude who ran the prison that I was in. Okay. And that guy looks at me and says, hey, about that time when Wolf says, what I hope I can do is get there and say, forget about it. This is the nature of forgiving and forgetting, according to Wolf. It's not that you're saying that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That would be bad. No, That's unhealthy. Yeah, that's we do right. not forget. We do not use forgiveness to put ourselves in danger or to keep other people in danger. And, and to erase history, to yeah. be honest. I mean, it... it that's even scarier, yeah. right? Because we have to. Ain't we no have, good. We want to remember that this stuff happened to avoid it happening again in the future. Now he got into some trouble when he was talking about this at the American Academy of Religion. When I saw him, and he was there with some rabbis, and they were talking about this, and he said, "Well, he said like again thought experiment: Is there a um, a Holocaust museum in heaven?" Hmm. And the reason he asked it was a very poignant one, and that is to say. Is it possible that there are times when victimized communities or people turn their victimization into their identity? And as much as that might seem empowering, maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily uh, heal to make the remembrance of the pain your new fetish or your new identity. But on the flip side, okay, with you, it's not that you're forgiving and forgetting in the way that you're forgetting that it happened. And I think the way he described it was, imagine you take this document that lists out all the things that happened. Mm-hmm. You put it into a folder. You put it onto your laptop hard drive. And you, and you just stick it on there. It's still there. Mm-hmm. Forgetting about it means you don't just dig it out every week right. to dwell on it and get drunk. No, it's there. You remember it. You think about it every once in a while when you need to reflect on it for your healing for the betterment of your community, for your children, but you don't make it your identity. Mm -hmm. This is, though, friends, up to you. This is not up to the community to force upon you. This is something that you are free to do, that might be healing for you to do, but for people to tell you to just get over it and forget about it is not the point. What he then does is he takes us to Dante's um, Inferno. And in in Dante... um, the Italian poet, he has this image where the, the Dante goes down into the underworld, and there's this river. And, of course, everybody knows the river sticks, but there are these two other rivers 
that he has there. One is one from classical Greek antiquity, and that's the river Lethe. And Lethe is where they believed, a lot of the ancient Greeks believed in transmigration of souls, something kind of like uh, reincarnation. And you would get to the river, and you would basically have your life flash before your eyes. And then you would, you would re- recollect mm-hmm. what, was, what was this story about. Mm-hmm. It was the judgment. Mm-hmm. What was real? The mm-hmm. light shines on this thing that was your life, and you're vindicated or you're judged. But then you put your face into that water, and you drink, and your mind is erased, basically. You forget. And that was the old Greek thing, and then you go into a new body. For Dante, who doesn't believe in reincarnation, but the Christian version mm-hmm. of the afterlife, he says, look, um, we need another river. And he invents a river called Unoe, E-U-N-O-E, Unoe, which means the good knowing. So you drink again, and he says, you drink again, and you re-remember your traumas and your suffering and your sins in light of this new reality, what we like to talk about as... Recapitulation. Yeah. The rechaptering of our story. and where a, to, it, Literally, it's putting a new cap on it, a new heading on it, right? Or yeah. Head on it. So Latin, in Latin, caput means the head, mm-hmm. or it also means a chapter. So you have these chapter headings. And basically the, the gist is, friends, and let me hopefully bring it home for you. So sorry for the things that have not gone well in your life, for things that have happened that were unjust, painful. Not even God can make those things not be. Right. That's real. And to the extent that the rain falls in the just and the unjust, and Tao Te Ching chapter 5 says, the universe is kind of random. This stuff happens. Mm-hmm. The liberation is you didn't deserve that. It's not your fault. The other part, though, is that you don't have to forget that that happened. That's part of your story. What you're invited to do is forget about it in the sense of not making it the centerpiece of your story. It's something that you, you grow from and, you, and you, you conquer. And you do this by forgetting it and then remembering it anew. And you remember it anew as part of this narrative. Can't get into all of it, but Marilyn McCord Adams, if you're really interested, go to our website. I'm going to talk about, uh, I'll give you a link to a more academic article on this. Marilyn McCord Adams says that idea that, you know, well, what's the meaning in this? You know, what's, uh, what's the silver lining in this? Sometimes there's just horrific crap. There's not a silver lining. Sometimes. Yeah, unless we make the silver lining. Right. You, me, and G-O-D. You, me, and Jesus. What we do is we say, now, how can we weave this? How can we be empowered to weave this into something more beautiful than the enemies that we've had could ever have dreamed? How can we turn despair into hope? How can we turn suffering into triumph? This is something we do through the spirit that Jesus brings, a spirit of hope, a spirit of defiance of the powers that be, a a, a spirit of, of... struggle against Babylon, a spirit of struggle against the religious leaders that want to crush us. Simultaneously recognizing all of the steps that brought you there. Yeah. And then 
realizing how you've triumphed over it, like you said, and and come out on the other. I'm, I'm imagining the phoenix again, right? Yeah. Now it takes us back to the phoenix. Yeah. And 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 Irenaeus. I don't want to get too caught up in the way that Irenaeus has been part of a conversation about what Christians talk about when they talk about this idea of um, atonement. What is it that when when we say in the Christian world, Jesus died for us? What does that mean? In many ways, Irenaeus points us towards this idea that Jesus is retracing the steps of Adam. Adam failed in the garden. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweat blood and was faithful. In the garden, Adam and Eve went to a tree and moved away from their balance, moved away from their harmonious, harmonious relationship with each other, with nature, and with God. Jesus then goes back into the garden, comes out of the garden tomb in resurrection, and brings folks back to that reconciliation and harmony. There were two angels in the New Testament that are saying, hey, he's risen. In the Genesis account, you've got this idea that the angels are keeping people out of the garden. They're now exiled out of Eden, and there are these flaming swords. So there's this poetic thing that Irenaeus does, and he's basically saying that the, one of the main stories of Christianity is that Jesus wins, Jesus is successful, where the first Jesus, the first Adam, you know, Adam, mm-hmm. um, our ancestor, our uh, representative ancestor failed Jesus is successful but what i think is more interesting for trauma and recovery is the idea that we then bring our stories into that story that big story that there is this overcoming in hope and in love of all these powers of darkness and that if all we had was just the end of a sentence halfway we just were cut off in death That's a bummer. But if there is this bigger story, if we're part of this great, grand, beautiful story of people that are not willing to give up in the struggle for goodness, truth, and beauty in the face of ugliness, evil, and and victimhood and victimization, right? We're not willing to give up. We're not willing to give up. And if and if that's all we got, Stacy's smiling there. You little smile there. I am. I am. Why not? We're going to fight this thing. Yes. We're not going to give up. And that little piece there is what we've got, our integrity, our, our love for one another, and defiance of what seems to be strong, that power, that evil out there in the world. It seems strong, mm-hmm. and it's terrifying sometimes, but it cannot win. So happy new year. And as much as you are in the thick of your own story right now, We're at the time of year where each of the days are going to get brighter and brighter. Let's embrace that. And let's embrace that light coming into our lives and helping and bring that back into our story where we can find peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. 
Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.